Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Now that you've finished dancing around the house, you can settle into your pancakes, your cup of coffee or whatever it is you do when you're listening to Radio Marinara on 102.73 Triple R. And if you're listening on demand, who knows, you might be having dinner. (laughs) This morning, I am Cade Mills. (laughs) I'm Fum. Hi. Good morning, everybody. Enjoy your pancakes. Enjoy your pancakes. Or your dinner if you're in the International Space Station. Yes, and your dance. Before we go any further, I want to thank Tim Thorpe for an amazing three hours of music, which I had the pleasure of listening to most of it this morning on my drive up from Phillip Island. Um, Kept me well entertained. I think Tim seemed to be in a bit of a cheeky, humorous mood. And so did Steph, because this show may also contain nuts. Steph? We'll definitely contain traces of nuts here. (laughs) (laughs) Triple R. And we will find out more when we get in touch with Myra later, which we should actually talk about what we're going on in today's show. Oh, yeah. We've got a really great full show. So um, we are going to start with Rex. Rex (laughs) is in the studio, everybody. Um, So we're going to uh, have him talk about the uh, wreck of the SS Central America and some really exciting finds in there. Yeah, this one wasn't on my radar at all, which, to be honest, is probably most Rex. (laughs) (laughs) This is why we have Rex. Exactly. (laughs) To put them on our radar. Yeah. And then after that, we're going to cross to Myra, who I'm guessing is probably sitting somewhere, either about to get on a boat or jump in the water because conditions are beautiful. She's going to give us a bit of an update of the dive conditions and maybe, you know, Tell us what the crabs are up to. Yeah, that'll be good. Um, so we'll we'll catch up with Myra. And then uh, I think uh, you're going to have a chat, Cade, with Dr. Will White regarding the grade egg case hunt. Well, hopefully we'll <laughs> both have a chat. But yes, Will's down in Tasmania. And when I sent him a message, I believe he's going to take refuge from his kids in the car because <laughs> he said he's got a very loud household. So he's going to join us live from his car in Tasmania to talk about the great egg case hunt. And yeah. it's basically talking about getting people to to um, send through their sightings of shark eggs. And most listeners may know that some sharks lay eggs. Some of you may be listening going, what the hell? Sharks <laughs> lay eggs? So we're going to dig into that a lot more as well as how people can get involved and help us learn more about these shark laying eggs. Yeah, super fun. Shark laying um, eggs, egg laying sharks. <laughs> shark laying yes. eggs. Well, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that'll be really great because that's a, a new citizen science uh, project by the CSIRO. Uh, and then uh, we are going to cross over to... Point Cook to have a chat with Andrew Christie, who is the president of Marine Care Point Cook. He's been president since 2011. And uh, he's also an uh, a lecturer at uh, aquaculture lecturer at Melbourne Polytechnic. And he's been looking at Asian shore crabs in Point Cook Marine Sanctuary for a long time now. Uh, so we're going to catch up with him and see what's going on there. So I've just been informed by Myra that she's at Blair Gary and the Blair Gary. Oh, my God, I can't talk this morning either. It's contagious, Should have Tim. had two coffees. I should have. Yes. She's at Blair Gary and conditions are beautiful. So if you're thinking of going for a dive, maybe jump in your car now and listen to us on your way there by the sounds of it. Mm-hmm. But we're going to travel around the bay and we're going to travel over to Tasmania as well. Now, do we have any news, from? Well, a little birdie told me there may or may not have been some spider crabs sighted on the east of the bay that you may be able to see on snorkel. 
So we can't reveal the location <laughs> for uh, for protection reasons. Um, but should you find yourself in the car on your way uh, for a little dive, uh, ask around. Yes, and you know we've got a Rex hunter. We do need a crab hunter as well, I think, which we do have. Ality Compress, yeah. who regularly joins us. Well, look, there is there is there is one crab hunter I know because uh, you know Ivan Leong, who is one of our very long-standing marine volunteers, who's always everywhere helping out uh, with all the marine science stuff. And uh, he was with me in Point Cook yesterday and decided to uh, jump in the car and uh, across the bay to the other side to go and see some crabs. So it's uh, good on you, Ivan. That's enthusiasm. <laughs> so yeah, for follow you. Ivan around. It's my tip. Yeah. Now, before we kick off with our first track, I've just got a quick bit of sort of news that came across my desk that I thought quite hilarious about elephant seals. So this was work that was done in California where they attached, you know, all sorts of things that monitored their brain waves, um, heart, how was it, heart monitors, the depth, the time recorders, accelerometers and things like that. And what they discovered is that the seals went out in the water and fell asleep and some of them fell to depths of over 370 metres while sleeping. <laughs> what? Not only did they fall while they were sleeping, some of them would hit the seafloor. Wow. And keep sleeping. And keep sleeping. <laughs> yes. So, God, that's really behaviour that you can only afford when you're a top predator. That's, well, there are things that do eat them. And that's why they believe they actually spent some, some time at sea. Well, apparently some of them woke up when they hit the seafloor, but okay, others right. actually stayed asleep while they were down there. Wow. But, yeah, they believe it's to do with um, basically you know, avoiding predators and being able to have sort of a nap out at sea is a spot that they can do that. So you know, if you're having any trouble sleeping, think like an elephant seal because not only can <laughs> you can drift 370 metres to the bottom, but you can hit the bottom and fall asleep. Yeah, I guess it does work when you're really big elephants I mean, those bulls—they they weigh what a ton or something like that. They're absolutely huge, so there's not a lot that will eat you unless it's like an orca or something. Yeah, you need quite a big mouth to get stuck into yeah, that one. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Our next guest, which is Rex Hunter, who had a fantastic segment presented, pre- prepared, and then the Montevideo Maru was basically took over front page news, and we we're like, "Are you going to talk about that, Rex?" And he's well, like, "Well, we'll have a quick have talk it. about it, and then I'll go in depth next time." But yeah, the um, Montevideo Maru was carrying prisoners of war from um, sort of uh, Philippines up to uh, was going to take them up to um, Japan and. July 1942, and an uh, American submarine torpedoed this, and in the end, I think it's 970 Australians were killed, and uh, all up there was 1,060 people lost their lives. So, and that sank in about 4,000 metres of water, which is pretty deep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think we're going to have to just tease this one, aren't we, yeah. Rex? Because it, there's a lot to talk about there, not only you know, the story just, behind it, but yeah, also... the technology just to find these sites is the, incredible and deep, very deep pockets. Now, can we jump from the Philippines to South Carolina? Okay. Um, well, I'm just going to talk about the REC or the S, uh, PS um, Central America. So is it the PS or the SS? PS, because there's paddle steamer and SS means steamship. Oh, there you go. I've learned something for today. I learned Thank something you. too. Yes, well, you two can always wanted to now. know. Yeah, no, yeah. done. <laughs> Thanks, Rex. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> so that, but I mean, you still call it, it's still a steamship, but the, it, PS usually signifies it's a paddle steamer. Huh. 
So this was a fairly, this is a massive vessel for the time. It was 85 metres long and about, you know, uh, about 15 metres wide. And what was the time? When was that? 1857. Like, uh, like Australia, America had a, a big gold rush from 1849 through the early, um, early 1860s. But, and um, so the, uh, that was in California. So to get to California was a massive, massive trip because if you say you're in New York, you're on the East Coast, you have to sail all the way down the bottom of South America around Cape Horn, which is really, really treacherous, back up and back up the West Coast, and then uh, into California. San Francisco was, was the main port. So the, the steamer was doing this, doing this run, and it's July or September 1857. It's come back with a load of gold diggers you know, that, that made their fortunes. So this vessel was carrying, well, it's estimated 13 tonnes of gold. So that's wow. in billion in species. I thought and paddle dust. steamers would only go on rivers, but they actually went on the sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Early on, yeah. Brunel's built one of the biggest paddle steamers around. Yeah, the great, wow. Great Eastern. Great Eastern, I think. Yeah, so, right. yeah, like the paddle, paddle wheels were, in, you know, probably seven, eight, nine metres in diameter. Wow, that's crazy. I learned two things today already yeah. about boats. <laughs> <laughs> but highly, um, highly unstable in rough water. So as you imagine one pad- paddle's dipping in. And the other pedal comes out the water, and the other pedal dips in. They're really yeah. That's why I was thinking because it it, uh, it sounds more like it's a barge. So yeah. that's why I expected it to be oh, on no, rivers. Cl- but clip a bow and the, all that yeah, type right. thing. So okay. it made of wood, making its way from up the um, east coast of North America and in the Gulf Stream. So it was two hundred miles off the coast of, of North Carolina, and um, got stuck in a hurricane. And then eventually, after about three days of being hammered to pieces. It was leaking and it just sank. So, wow! Luckily, they had so there was five hundred odd people aboard. One hundred and fifty managed to get off, mostly women and children. There was a um, a couple of vessels nearby, a couple of small sailing vessels. So, the captain of the of the um, Central America yelled out to um, one of the vessels, gave him his latitude and longitude. Uh, so they had a rough idea, and there was another. A couple of other vessels got their latitudes and longitudes when they were trying to, you know, get the people. Because if you can imagine trying to trying to transfer people in small boats 200 miles off the coast in, you know, 30 foot waves, it it was a job. So that's why 150 managed to get off. But I'm also guessing, like Latin longitude, wasn't he? Looked at his phone or his GPS. <laughs> and he did not call that, that in over yeah. the radio. <laughs> well, you can only do it by sunshots. Yeah, and uh, so. Wherever he got his sunshot, they don't know, or they they realise it was like at the morning or noon the day before or something like that. So, yeah. But the current run, the um, Gulf Stream runs, you know, a few knots. So this vessel's slowly being dragged dragged north with the Gulf Stream, and um, they got lots of longs, and then and there's a series of other. Okay. <laughs> a series of other positions they managed to get. And so eventually through hard work and research, Tommy, there was a scientist called Tommy Thompson and he, um, he with, a, another, with other scientists got together, but they were treasure hunted scientists. 
boo hiss. <laughs> Fake scientists. Are they just pirates? <laughs> oh, just scientists <laughs> trying to fund their research project. Yes. I mean, you know, we all have to do it these days. And eventually they got onto a guy who did search, search theory. So search theory was developed during World War II and find lost airmen drifting about the Pacific and that. And so they, through him they contracted him and he f- located um, high areas of probability. So then they went off and hired a, a multi-million dollar side scan sonar and began searching in 3,000 metres of water. 3,000 metres? So 3,000 metres of water. In yeah. 1988? Yeah. Wow. Well, it, it was cutting-edge stuff, really cutting-edge huh. stuff. And they ended up finding a couple of targets and one... One ended up being the uh, Central America. So they um, then they went off and built it like a couple of million dollar ROV, you know, cutting edge that would actually suckers and claws and cameras. And with that, they could spend, you know, 12-hour dives, self-contained battery pack, co- controlling it from the surface. And they end up recovering, oh, just a fra- like 5% of what was there. That would have been enough to fund the trip, I'm guessing? Well, the f- How much gold was that? Yeah. Oh, it would have been, you know... Hundreds of kilos, and they. Um, but this is where it gets interesting. Mad scientist Tommy Thompson decided because <laughs> insurance companies wanted to have their stake in the claim. So they, there was thirty nine insurance companies laid claim to a stake in it because they said they insured the vessel. <laughs> that was their first mistake. Yeah, it was a ten year court battle. Uh, wow. Tommy Thompson ended up going quite mad by the sounds of it, and refused to hand you know, a couple of thousand coins over to the investors. He ended up selling some for $52 million, <sighs> hid the money, disappeared off the face of the earth. <laughs> they eventually found him and he's locked up in jail. He's been in jail for the last seven years refusing to give over, divulge where the money or the coins are. Oh, oh. that is oh. some story, Rex. <laughs> so I take it you're an ethical pirate. That's why you're able to come into that the is, studio. This is a typical, <laughs> typical pirate doesn't want to give up the, you know, the X on the map location. So, <laughs> so this is, it, it's, it's a fantastic story. If you ever get a, see uh, this, a book called Ship of Gold in the Deep Blue Sea in the secondhand bookshop, buy it, you'll be fascinated. It's just a fantastic read. Amazing. And I'm, I'm looking for tr- a treasure ship like that myself. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't get the insurance companies involved. <laughs> <laughs> that was sensational. Thank you, Rex. We actually all learnt quite a lot from that. <laughs> and I'm guessing with that, like, technology sort of went forward as a result oh, of these, that. these guys were sort of cutting work. edge. I mean, they were brilliant scientists but just completely corrupt. So <laughs> corruption does breed good things. So somewhere thought, there yes. is now not a ship with gold <laughs> hidden but $52 million somewhere yeah. on the ground <laughs> or under the water. We're going to listen to a few station announcements and come back with Myra Kelly with the dive report. R. 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 This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Welcome back to Radio Marinara on this beautiful Sunday morning. You're here with Kate and Fum and on the phone, hopefully, we have Myra Kelly for our dive report. Hi, Myra. Are you there? Hey, Fum. Hey, Kate. How are you? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's going pretty well here. But uh, look, it's, it's not as, uh, probably not as nice as where you are right now. Where are you uh, calling in from? 
I am calling in from Blair Gallery. I'm down here on the foreshore. The sun is shining on my back. It is just the most beautiful autumn morning. It's a really low tide here, and I think it's actually still going out. Um, the car park is definitely filling up with people interested in coming down to see our Spidey friends. And, um, yeah, it looks like it's going to be a really good day in the water for people. Amazing. And, um, I mean, what's the visibility like at the moment? Because I heard it's, it's, there's not a lot of wind at the moment, is there? No, it's really, really flat down here. Um, I think it's blowing from Ed Blair around about a, a south-southeast, and it's really gentle, about eight knots. Um, I, uh, visibility, I have spoken to a couple of divers who have already exited the water. Uh, the, the crab army is obviously in town um, because it sounds like visibility is really down. Uh, they put the visibility this morning less than two metres. So is that due to the crabs or the divers, Myra? <laughs> <laughs> you never know. <laughs> well, look, they, the, the divers exiting, they certainly had all the gear, so I'm hoping they had the idea um, and it might be just down to the... The, uh, the crabs serving the uh, the sediment up. Um, they, uh, yeah, they're obviously photographers. They had all the equipment, so they were on the hunt for some some really good um, photos of either the the crabs or the the other predators that come in um, around this time of year when the, the crabs are in town. Um, but they did say. Uh, as far as the nudies, the nudie branks that we probably counted um, the last fortnight in the the census, they they said look they only spotted two nudie branks. So um, it, it sounds like the crabs might have come through and they're munching on a on a lot of the the food that's uh, in the area at the moment. Yeah, and that and just a bit of trampling with all those little spidery well, crab feet yeah. walking all over the place now. Well, just. <laughs> For those, well, the nudies could be buried in the sand, perhaps. That's yeah. it. For those who are either on their way down or they're sitting in the car listening um, or they're thinking about it, what are just a couple of things divers can do just to, I guess, dive safely but also ensure that they're not getting in the way of the crabs? Um, probably, um, yeah, just be respectful of the, the marine life. Uh, buoyancy is a really uh, a really key thing. Um, yeah, trying not to put your body on, on the sand, really trying to maintain your buoyancy. Your fin kicks, um, try to uh, breaststroke style, a bit like the, the tech divers do, instead of bicycle kicking. Um, that will also, you know, if you're trying to get photography um, of, the, of the spider crabs, it also help just improve the, uh, the the sediment and not you know having so many particles in the water as well. Yeah, great. Um, that, those are great uh, great tips, Myra. Sorry, we have to move on to our next segment. Yeah. But I could hear you. T- like, I could listen to you talk about spider crabs all day. <laughs> but what's even better than talking about spider crabs is going down and seeing them. So, yeah, definitely. So get in the water and please do uh, please do drop us a line or put some of your beautiful photography on Facebook later. Uh, Myra is also a wonderful. Un- the water photographer so i can't wait to see the photos myra thank you so much Thanks, for your dive mom. report <laughs> and enjoy thank you have a great weekend you too that was myra <laughs> kelly one of our dive reporters uh, from blair gary pier if you're out there on your way to blair gary or you're thinking about it or you're even there now we'd love for you to drop us a text on the triple r text line or even if you're doing something else completely and just let us know what you're up to if you've got any news you'd like us to cover and the number is 0466981116 
1027, of course. And now our next guest, um, Will White, is an ichthyologist at CSIRO based in Tasmania. I believe he's currently taking refuge from a noisy home by jumping into his car. Good morning, Will. Welcome to Marinara. Good morning, how are you going? Yes, I'm certainly am. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I hope you get to enjoy the next 10 minutes of hiding in your car and chatting to us. Look, <laughs> look before we launch into the great egg case hunt, we teased it at the start of the show. We'd love to hear a little bit more about what you get up to when you're not hiding into your car doing an interview. And I've found that you've described more than 50 new sharks and rays, including and six new bony fishes. Where the hell did you find them? Yeah, that's what I <laughs> want to know. Uh, well, a lot of my early work during my PhD was in Indonesia. Um, so I was doing regular trips over there, helping to train some of the fishery scientists over there to look at the sharks and rays that are caught in um, the various fisheries that occur there. So they had the biggest shark fishery in the world, but there was no, not even any baseline information on what species were getting caught. And we very quickly worked out that a lot of the species that were getting caught were unknown to science, obviously well known by the fishers, but um, they hadn't been sort of scientifically evaluated. And so there was about uh, 20 or 30 new species from that project alone. And then that that really just got me into um, being able to work with the group at CSIRO on trying to resolve all the um, unknown Australian species that um, still hadn't been worked on at the time. And so are we still finding them, just out of curiosity? Yeah, hot off the press. We just found about <laughs> two or three new ones um, from a trip we did on the um, research vessel investigator off the northwestern Australia in December last year, actually. Oh, amazing. So you're actually still finding them in the wild rather than in museum collections or things like that? Yes. Thing we often say to people is that we're not just we don't just find them through you know deep water discovery, which um, you know is sometimes they're hidden in plain sight. So like sometimes genetic information gives us an idea that something that occurs in the western side of Australia is different to on the eastern side, and then we look closer and work out they are different. Um, other times, yeah, you just find them in a museum collection. Other times, one of the new species I found, we were just doing a quick survey of fish markets in Taiwan, and we saw a. Um, type of dog dog shark that I had worked on that group and instantly recognised that as oh, that's something different. I definitely know that. So um, sometimes they've just been there in front of people, but no one's kind of conned onto it. All right, now we're actually going to have to have you back on just to talk about this. Yes, I have so many questions. This is fascinating to begin <laughs> with, and I guess um, touching on that hidden in plain sight that you mentioned, um, we're onto the great egg case hunt. Um, Many listeners will be aware that some sharks lay eggs, but some may not. What can you tell us about egg-laying sharks? Like, why, why do some lay eggs and why don't some? Well, yeah, just um, I guess one but tiny bit from that is one of the most amazing things about sharks and why I love working on them is that they, they do have this the most diverse range of reproductive modes of any other living vertebrates, um, ranging from placental, like what mammals have, um, to laying eggs, that is what we're getting and talking about now. But also um, we got egg-eating ones, embryo-eating ones, and even parthenogenic ones, and that parthenogenesis is where... Specimens that have been kept away from males, the females have still become pregnant having never been in contact with a male, and that's happened in a range of groups as well. So they're really interesting in that perspective. But then, yeah, about a third of the species are egg layers, and, and there's a huge diversity of the different types of eggs. 
um, that we see, and, and we see that in Australian waters as well. So I guess, I mean, we will finally get onto this great egg case, Hun. It's just fascinating to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> What's the reason? Like, why lay eggs? Uh, it's just, it's just um, you know, a mechanism that's evolved to sort of, instead of having the embryos inside the female for, say, eight months of the year, they've evolved for it to be a safer practice for those to develop in hard egg cases, you know, sort of probably hidden somewhere, camouflaged on the bottom, rather than, you know, risking, you know, the mother being killed by a predator and then the young are gone as well. So it's just, it's just how things have sort of evolved competitively in nature. And... Do they lay one, two, ten? Like, I'm sure there's variability, but how many eggs do they lay at a time? Yeah, so a lot, most of the species lay um, just, they, they have two uteri, so they'll lay um, an egg out of each, so there's two egg cases coming out at a time. But they, you know, some species can lay up to 100 eggs a year. They just sort of keep laying. And, and what's interesting as well is that they're often just, so in captivity, they're often just lay the eggs, even if they haven't mated and they're not going to fertilise them, they still just keep producing them on this cycle. Yeah, I have seen this uh, when I was working in an aquarium. There was a leopard shark there, female, that, that kept laying eggs that were just never hatched. But it was really interesting to see that. Yeah, and, and I think recently there's been one that actually did hatch, <laughs> interestingly, and it was a oh. female by itself, and, and they, yeah, they, they actually um, did some testing and leaving them, and one of them actually turned out to, and that, that was an example of that parthenogenesis, which is a really strange one. <laughs> so you come, mm. you come to work in the aquarium the next day, and all of a sudden there's two sharks instead yeah, of one. That's yeah, amazing. you got one, and <laughs> so, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I'm still just really information overline. It's been fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's talk about the great egg case hunt. That's what's led us to having this conversation with you. Um, look, it's not a new idea, but it's new to Australia. Uh, like, can you tell us a bit about where it started and why this is kicking yeah. off here? Yeah, definitely. In uh, in the UK in 2003, the Shark Trust, which is a, a sort of not for profit. Um, charity organisation um, started this excellent idea um, and a lot of, in the UK you, you know you, you don't get many species there there's a lot less diversity than we get in Australia but there's about I think it's about seven or eight species um, but they lay a lot of eggs in shallow water so you get they get a lot of wash-ups and so a lot of skate eggs and cat shark eggs so you know, lots of people were finding them so they started this um, citizen science app where people can record it and, and, and they've got some really interesting you know findings out of that as well. I guess you know, the next question is, what are those interesting findings? <laughs> so, I mean, it gave them a lot of ideas into where these species may be occurring. So, I mean, the good thing with egg cases is that it indicates not only that a species might be in the area, but that they're obviously breeding in the area, which is really important information. So in some areas you might know a species occurs, but they might just be transient through that area. still important to protect, but you really want to be protecting those areas where they're actually reproducing, especially when there's egg cases that are sitting there for, you know, half a year to a year before the embryo hatches you don't really want you know disturbance of all that habitat yeah and and when if people want to get on board here in australia with that how do they recognize an egg case because there, there is quite a little bit of variety in it isn't there for the australian species yeah and that's that was really where we came on board with the great egg case hunt australia aspect is because people can hop on it's, it's a global database so anyone in australia could have for a long time gone on and logged a record but there's no identification guide there and you'd be sort of stuck trying to work out between photos you can see of the species that occur in the UK, which are very different to what we get here. Um, so essentially what with, with the app, which, so it's, a, it's through the Shark Trust um, app that people can download, and then there's a project called the Great Head Case Hunt. And if you actually go in there 
and look to um, record log a new sighting, it takes you to a spot where you can um, click on help identifying and it steps you through a really easy key. And in most areas, you don't get a lot of species um, that will be egg laying where the eggs could wash up on the beach. And what we found is that, you know, anyone with no prior knowledge within a minute or two will have it to the species pretty quickly. So it's it's nice and educational. All people can just, you know, log it straight as I think it's a neat case and you guys can work it out later kind of thing. So it's sort of open for everyone. Yeah, and you were saying like a lot of it's stuff that sort of washes up. We, I guess, have a lot of people that spend a fair bit of time in the water. Can If people come across them in situ, so in the water, do you recommend they take a photo and then share that with you through the app? Is that Can that be done? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the underwater records um, are arguably much more important and I would definitely, they're, they're less common than, you know, the amount of people that you'll get walking on the beaches and that's still really important information. But, yeah, the records that you can get from a photo underwater are really important because that gives us information on the habitat that they're laying them on. And although not really relevant to this app, some of the deep water work we do, we're finding that some of the species, you know, they might lay on only one type of coral um, and things like that. So they can be really specific. Um, uh, the, the other thing is it's, it can often be quite hard to find them. So out of 100 people diving, only one person might find a particular species. So it's really important to try and capture as many of those records as we can. Look, thank you so much for taking refuge in your car to talk to us. There are so many questions that have sort of developed out of this and I'd love to keep in touch with you to see how this project goes. Um, can you just give a quick plug for where people can find out more information? The um, Shark Trust app in any of your sort of downloading app devices um, and you can download the Shark Trust and then within that there's multiple projects but the Great Egg Case Hunt is one of the first ones there and tells you a bit about them there's posters you can download for each state and you can log your own records and have you know get the kids involved it's great awesome thank you so much for your time will and yeah we will definitely be catching up and chatting to you again yeah and we'll put a link uh, to this uh, shark trust app on our facebook page excellent thanks very much Wow, that was amazing, again. My mind keeps getting blown, this yeah. Radio Marinara episode, it's first by Rex, now by Will. Um, so much to learn about sharks. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Uh, we are crossing over live to Point Cook at the moment, um, where we have Andrew Christie waiting for us. Andrew is the president of Marine Care Point Cook, and he's also an aquaculture lecturer for Melbourne Polytechnic. And he is a long-term presenter on our sister program, Out of the Blue, on 3CR as well, which is how we know each other, actually. Uh, Andrew has been looking after Point Cook Marine Sanctuary since 2009, and in recent years he's developed a, a very keen interest and also um, some pretty professional expertise in, in the Asian shore crab, which is a recently discovered marine pest to the bay and also, unfortunately, spotted in great numbers in the marine sanctuary. Welcome, Andrew. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Farm and Kate, and thanks very much for the invitation to come and chat. Look, I've been wanting to talk to you since forever because, really, uh, when we think about it, usually all of the glory and the attention goes to Jawbone Marine Sanctuary or Ricketts Point uh, or, or the Mornington Peninsula. Uh, so now that you have the chance, can you tell us a little bit about marine, uh, the, the Marine Sanctuary at Point Cook because it's actually quite beautiful there? Yeah, sure. So uh, Point Cook Marine Sanctuary is about 290 hectares in uh, in total area. It's got, a, a, I think, a shoreline of about 3.2 kilometres. 
Um, it was gazetted officially as a marine sanctuary, I think, back in about 2002. Before then, uh, I think you can trace its development back to around 1992 when the, the areas were first being sussed out as potential uh, as potentially suitable for marine sanctuaries in the northern section of Port Phillip Bay. So, yeah, it, um, it's, it's been around for a little while. Marine Care Point Cook, a group of uh, volunteers, came together in about, I think it was 2009. Um, I personally have been a member since about uh, since about 2011 um, so that's uh, yeah uh, a good um uh, bit of an outline for you about where we're at the the group membership is something that has certainly altered over time it's something that um we um my apologies, I'm having some computer difficulties here um, <laughs> story the, of our lives uh, yeah <laughs> Yes, the uh, the membership is something that's fluctuated over time, but we've lately had uh, one of our uh, volunteers, Susie Ingalls, who's also with uh, Nature West, who M- M- Marine Care Point Cook have now basically um, aggregated with or, or come together with. Um, she has done a wonderful job on raising our profile via social media. Um, so what that's led to is a big uptick in membership and a lot of people very, very interested in all the things going on under the water. And the Asian shore crabs uh, factored in beautifully with that. I think one of the key things with volunteers is having um, something for them to concentrate their efforts on. And now, more often than not, it's uh, getting in the water and just experiencing the the, the beauty of Point Cook Marine Sanctuary. Yes, yeah, so- um so, so very quickly, yeah. like what when you say the beauty of Point Cook, because I know that you know Jawbone and, and Rickers Point, they have a very particular flavour. There's like rocky reefs and there's seagrass and things like that. So, what can people expect when they snorkel at Point Cook? Just quickly before we dive into the Asian shore crab stuff, I'm sure. curious. Yeah, um, pretty similar sort of habitats. From in a way, you've got a lot of uh, basalt reef areas which tend to attract a lot of life. Um, you get the uh, the seagrass meadows, like you mentioned, uh, areas with fairly muddy sort of bottoms. But then there's also um, some uh, some sandy beach sections, which are good for families to go out and enjoy the uh, the, the you know traditional day at the beach type thing. Um, but one of the uh, one of the uh, I guess key points about Point Cook is it's an absolute haven for what we call the elasmobranchs, so that the, the sharks and rays. And we see a hell of a lot of the um, the southern fiddler rays, uh, sometimes referred to as banjo sharks in the area. Uh, just yesterday, while we were doing the Asian shore crab sampling, I saw a, uh, a round or spotted stingaree in water that was, uh, you know, less than less literally less than ankle deep. Yeah, it it's really beautiful. See? People could just see it just standing on the shore. It didn't even have to go in. <laughs> That's pretty yeah, special. Yeah, it was quite amazing. Yeah, so yeah. it's. Uh, it's beautiful time of year to get out and have a look at uh, Point Cook if you can brave the chilly water because, yeah, there's a lot of uh, um, rays and things out there. There's a lot of fish. Um, we see schools of uh, snapper, black brim, mullet, um, these sorts of fish to, to give you a bit of an idea. So there's a lot going on. Um, sea urchins as well, they're one thing that has been culled in various parts of the marine sanctuary now since about 2018, and that has led to a big uh, upsurge in the numbers of algae uh, that are in yeah, the area. yeah. So, so not not so many, uh, not so many urchins. Lots of lots of algae as a result, which is a, which is a good thing, right? Yes, absolutely. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, that's, Andrew, uh, now sort of given the ecosystem a bit of a kick. Oh, we're having a little bit of a zoom delay, I think. <laughs> 
Um, so, Andrew, I wanted to I wanted to ask you more about your work with the Asian shore crab because we know that the Asian shore crab is is quite a recent uh, recent arrival uh, in terms of pest species in Port Phillip Bay, uh, and it was discovered sort of in like I think it was 2020, but then other people have since come come uh, over with photos of 2017 that they took of these crabs and didn't know what they were. So so they've been around for a little while. Um, but the first time I heard of the Asian shore crab was actually in relation to your work, where uh, you discovered that there was this marine pest and you decided to uh, to have a, a squiz with some of your Melbourne Polytechnic students and turn over some rocks. And, and what did you find? Yeah, so uh, well, uh, to, to give you a bit of an idea, as you pointed out, from um, where it was first uh, identified positively at Mount Martha back in October of 2020, uh, and that was um, work that was done by um, Agriculture Victoria and Parks Victoria. Uh, they um, ended up putting out a briefing to all the marine care groups, got in touch with their networks and mentioned that, yes, this, this crab has indeed turned up. Um, we were starting to have a look at all the, the crabs in the local area and try to discover where they were at and what sort of population numbers uh, were there. But in the interim period, um, just fairly recently, in fact, Susie Ingalls got in touch with me and sent me over a, uh, a photograph, um, the aforementioned Susie Ingalls from Marine Care Point Cook, and it showed it was a couple of beautiful photographs of an Asian shore crab that was time-stamped November 2017. There you so go. So that correlates pre- pretty much with what the authorities were saying, that this crab was several generations old and um, it was probably already in the non-eradicable uh, state. Uh, so our efforts at that point, concentrated on suppression of the population by uh, removing them with a uh, with a permit but then also uh, trying to get an idea on what the demographics were that we were seeing. What sort of, uh, what sexes are we seeing more commonly? Um, are the females carrying eggs? Um, what sort of sizes, ranges are we uh, are we seeing? Uh, so we decided to, yeah, get some students from Melbourne Polytechnic investigating that. Um, headed out with a few cohorts of students to the marine sanctuary and turned over rocks and had a look. And it was about the first three or four um, little expeditions that we mounted that we found zero, uh, oh. a grand total of zero crab on each occasion and thought, well, this is a, this is a good thing. Um, and then we got 40 students from the Conservation and Land Management uh, Diploma under uh, Jennifer Gibson brought those all out to the marine sanctuary and had a look and the sheer people power was clearly the uh, the the thing there and Asian shore crabs like a lot of other marine species have what you call patchy abundance so um, we we uh, we saw something like 85 of them amongst those uh, those 40 uh, 40 people and uh, then continued on our merry way from there wow that's really amazing and and look we, we could talk about this for you know a lot longer because you've done so much research into that and you're still doing these removals there. Andrew, if people want to support your group and they want to get in touch and maybe become a member because they're locals and help out with the Asian shore crab um, removals, how do they get in touch with you? Yep, just jump onto uh, the Google machine or hop onto uh, Facebook and punch in Marine Care Point Cook and you can uh, you can check us out there. Also, if you're interested in the programs Melbourne Polytechnic runs, just jump onto uh, Google again and punch in Melbourne Polytechnic and that'll take you to the webpage. So we're not uh, going to be terribly difficult to track down, so uh, so just do that and, yeah, we'll uh, we'll definitely make contact with you and, uh, and we can take it from there. Amazing. Thank you so much. That was Andrew Christie um, uh, from Marine Care Point Cook and Melbourne Polytechnic. Yes, and they actually do quite a bit of work with quite a few different species and there, so I would highly recommend getting in touch with them, particularly if you are over that side of town. Thank you for an amazing show, Farm. That was so fun. I learned so much. 
That's great. I also want to thank Rex. I want to thank Myra for the multiple updates throughout the show. I want to thank <laughs> Will for taking refuge in the car. Um, Andrew for his talk about um, Point Cook and Rachel for punching all the buttons. Next week's going to be Bron and myself. We're going to have Scott Breskin from Nature Conservancy, Michael Sands from Parks Victoria, two people in the studio, and we'll have something else special, which means I don't know what that's going to be. It's a surprise. It's a surprise. Thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy your Sunday morning. Woo! <sighs> that's right. Triple R. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.